I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. So this episode covers an important topic currently in the news, uh, the protest uprising currently in Baghdad uh, that has included sit-ins and armed demonstrations at the behest and support of uh, Muqtada al-Sadr. We don't normally include many questions about ongoing developments, but my guest today, Representative Bayan Sami Abdulrahman, is maybe one of the best people to talk to with regards to how Kurdish political interests are navigating the situation. Uh, Representative Abdul Rahman has been the KRG's representative for the United States in Washington, D.C. since 2015. Before that, she was high representative in the United Kingdom, uh, where she spent much of her life growing up. And uh, before that, she worked as a journalist before entering into public service. Uh, we didn't just talk about the current developments uh, in Iraq. We also discussed her and her family's own background and some of the situations that she's had to navigate during her time in Washington. But uh, it's a long interview, so I'll leave it to her to talk about that some more. So with all that, here's our conversation. Representative Abdul Rahman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start before we get into discussing some of the topics of the day uh, by asking you about your family and upbringing. Uh, Specifically, your father uh, was a very prominent figure in Kurdish history. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, So my parents were both born in Sinjar or Shingal, um, and our family historically uh, is from Shingal. We also have many relatives across the border in uh, Rojava. We also have many relatives in Bakur, in so Kurdistan of Turkey, in Kurdistan of Syria, and of course Shingal or Sinjar. My father uh, won a scholarship, an Iraqi government scholarship in the 1950s, and studied engineering at Manchester University in the UK. And uh, really, he was self-made. Of course, he he, he came from a relatively well-off family. I mean, he wasn't underprivileged, but still to have grown up in Shingal, to have made it uh, all the way to a university in the United Kingdom, that was all his own uh, academic skills and his own ambition. Uh, After finishing his studies in Britain, he returned, he married my mother, and he, be, he at first worked at the Iraqi oil ministry as an engineer, I believe. And then uh, very soon he joined the Kurdistan Democratic Party in the early 1960s and was very close to uh, our leader, Mala Mustafa Barzani, and rose up through the ranks of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. But I also want to say a little bit about my mother, Uh, Kurdish women and their role in the Kurdish struggle is often overlooked. And I don't say this just because she is my mother. I want to say this on behalf of other Kurdish women who have played a role in the Kurdish struggle. My maternal grandfather, Amin Abdurrahman, was a very well-known, highly respected figure in in Sinjar or Shingal. He was exiled, he was imprisoned for his pro-Kurdish activities. He was also a supporter of Mala Mustafa Barzani, and of course they knew each other personally. So my maternal grandfather was also a personality that I think should not be forgotten. 
And my mother too, she was a mother, she was a housewife, if you like to use a, a Western term, but she supported uh, my father and in all of his activities, she was a deep, deep patriot and a campaigner. And the way I would describe my parents, my father was a leader, a statesman, a politician, my mother was a campaigner. And that made for some very interesting <laughs> dinner time conversations <laughs> at the family table. I'm going to jump forward and I'm going to skip over a lot of uh, my parents' history, but basically my father rose through the ranks of the Kurdistan Democratic Party uh, to a position in the Politburo and was eventually the Secretary General of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. Uh, he also one of, was one of the leading figures when it came to negotiations, for example, with various Iraqi governments, uh, also with other parties. Um, he was one of the people who negotiated the 1970 autonomy agreement with the Ba'ath Party. And the 1970 autonomy agreement really is a foundation for what we have today. It demanded autonomy for Kurdistan, uh, for Kurdistan to have the right to teach in Kurdish and so on. Um, he also was one of the cabinet ministers in 1970 who were Kurdish. Part of the 70 autonomy agreement was that Kurdish uh, ministers would be, would be able to participate in the Iraqi cabinet. So he was among those as well as many other prominent figures. Um, years later, my father broke away from the Kurdistan Democratic Party and established his own political party, Parti Gul, uh, for short, which is the People's Party. Eventually, he rejoined the KDP and again joined the Politburo. And uh, I'm skipping over many, many years of struggle and, and political activity uh, I'm going to skip over to the late 1990s when my father became the deputy prime minister of the Kurdistan regional government while also in the leadership of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. And then in 2004, uh, my father was uh, killed, assassinated in a terrorist uh, attack that hit both the KDP and the PUK on February 1st, 2004. Many people were killed in that attack in both parties. Children were killed in that attack. And among those who were killed were my father, Sami Abdurrahman, and my elder brother, Salah, who was um, with my father at that moment. So I know many people really want me to talk about what happened on February 1st, 2004. For me, it's actually more important to talk about my brother Salah and my father Sami and how they lived and how they struggled for Kurdish rights and what they achieved in their life. And that is what inspires me. Of course, their death was tragic, as was the death of the others who were taken from their families that day. But we should all be inspired by those people and how they lived, how they struggled, and how they gave their life for Kurdistan. And that's what really inspires me about my brother, Salah, my father, and my mother, who also sadly passed away in 2014, almost 
exactly 10 years after 1st of February 2004. I don't actually uh, want to talk about the February 1st attack itself, but I I would like to ask, uh, do you believe grief is a motivating factor for your work? Um, I wouldn't say grief. Um, I have always been extremely patriotic. I grew up in Britain from the age of 11. So in fact, most of my life, I have lived abroad. But having that family history, my grandfather, I haven't mentioned any of the things that my aunts and uncles did. They've ended up being jailed by Saddam's regime. They've ended up being displaced. I mean, our whole extended family has has played a role, as have many other Kurdish families. I'm not saying we're unique by any means. I'm just trying to explain that it's not just my father. There's my mother, my brother who also died, and then my extended family. So having grown up in that atmosphere, even if I was going up and growing up in London, This was all part of my growing up. I grew up under the shadow and at the heart of that kind of family atmosphere. So I was extremely patriotic and I worked as a journalist. My first career, 17 years, was working as a journalist in the United Kingdom uh, and partly in, in Japan as well for a British newspaper. All of that time, I I was uh, active in the Kurdish diaspora in the UK. I married somebody who's a Kurd from uh, Rosh Halat or Iran. Um, He was very, very active in the Kurdish community in London. So I, while I grew up abroad, I, I never forgot my history and my family's patriotism. So I was always drawn to that. Uh, By around, let's say, 2001, 2002, especially after 9-11, I was very conscious that the world had changed. America was going to invade Iraq or liberate Iraq as we saw it. We all knew this, this was a huge turning point for Iraq and Kurdistan. And I was already making plans, really, to leave journalism and to tried to find a way of living and working in Kurdistan. Uh, so I had already made, started to make steps towards that when February 1st, 2004 happened when my father and my brother were killed. So I was already heading in that direction. Maybe that event speeded things up, but it, it's not what made me decide. I was already heading in that direction. But uh, anybody who visits our office in, in DC, and especially my, my room at our office, I have a, a photograph, a very large photograph of my parents. That photograph was taken in the late 1960s uh, in Naupurdan. And when I look at that photograph, I'm inspired by them, by my entire family, by all of the Kurdish people who have sacrifice so much for Kurdistan. That's what really inspires me. And since you brought up that point about your mother, I'd like to ask, uh, since diplomacy has historically and still to this day has been a male-dominated field, how do you see yourself and your work continuing that tradition of strong Kurdish women taking up leadership roles for their culture? Well, I think role models are important, and there were Kurdish women who were role models for me. 
of course, also British women and European American women who I have looked up to. Uh, but certainly there were Kurdish women who I have looked up to from afar who played a, a public role. And so I'm very conscious that role models are important in, in every society. Uh, and I, I do my best and I, I am sure I make mistakes and I'm sure there are shortcomings on my part, but I do my best to be a positive role model for Kurdish young women, even for young men. I have to say I'm very chuffed when young men in Kurdistan say you're a role model. And, and I'm very, very conscious of that. It's, it's very flattering, I have to say, but it's also a very serious responsibility to, you know, to, to take that on board. I think the other thing that uh, as a woman we should do for each other is to mention other women who have been successful, not to forget to do that. And definitely to support other women as they climb the ladder in whatever their profession is, whether it's teaching, whether it's an NGO, whether it's politics. Uh, I think it's important that we all support each other. I'd like to focus now on the on the news coming out of Baghdad uh, with the Sadrus protests that are still ongoing. And I'd like to begin by uh, just broadly asking, what kind of work are you doing in D.C. Uh, regarding work with Iraqi officials and U.S. officials on navigating that situation? Well, we're all watching the protests with great interest and perhaps concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk to American officials or even our colleagues at the Iraqi embassy in DC and others uh, who are interested in Iraq, we're all watching the protests. These protests are by and large very organized. Uh, They are protests called by Mr. Muqtada Sadr or by the coordination framework. They are different in my opinion from the 2019 protests where they were really public protests that were inspired by the public. And just going back to the issue of women, the 2019 protests, women played a role in that. Mm -hmm. I don't see many women on the streets this time. I don't see many women playing a role this time. And maybe this is a a reflection of, of the parties that are leading these protests. It doesn't mean that they're not genuine. They are genuine. These are political parties with mass support that are calling on their their supporters to come out onto the street. So it does reflect a a public and a political opinion, but they're not as organic as the 2019 protests. We've also seen a different way of handling these protests. In 2019, people were killed. Hundreds of innocent protesters, some of them children, were killed by the security forces and by anonymous forces. This time we have seen a very delicate response by the security forces. So clearly these are very different, orchestrated, but that doesn't take away from the strength of support that they have. We're all watching the political developments behind these protests to see where is Iraq heading to? Are we now in uncharted territory where the constitutional system has been overridden, parliament has been shut down, we're heading into uncharted waters which could be very positive or could be extremely dangerous. 
So this is the kind of conversation that is being had here in Washington by all types of stakeholders, Iraqis, Iraqi diaspora, Kurdish diaspora, American officials. We're all watching this very closely. Specifically uh, regarding the party politics in Kurdistan, uh, there was a meeting held between uh, Masoud Barzani and Bafel Talabani of the PUK in what appeared to be uh, an attempt to show a united front with regard to these protests. Uh, obviously, as a diplomat in D.C., you have to work with Iraqi President Barham Saleh and his representatives. Uh, he's he's a PUK-affiliated uh, and uh, you have PDK affiliation. So at this point, I'm curious, uh, what kind of conversations are you having with them? So just for this, just to declare my interest, if you like, I am the ship council of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. So I'm concerned about what happens politically in Kurdistan on many fronts. One is the KRG representative and the other is a member of the KDP. As KRG representative, I don't talk about internal political dynamics unless I'm asked specifically. KDP and PUK both have their own representatives here in the D.C. area. So, of course, American officials have expressed their concern repeatedly that the KDP and the PUK have not been united over the selection of a presidential candidate for Iraq. Um, This has been a frustration for everybody, both for the KDP leadership, the PUK leadership, for the public, for Americans, for our friends, Uh, Of course, we all want greater unity between the Kurdish parties, all of the parties, especially at this moment, this inflection point that we're seeing in Iraq. I think Kurdish unity is critical. Um, Conversations with Iraqi diplomats, to be honest, we don't really talk about internal Iraqi politics other than to say that here in Washington, neither the Iraqi embassy nor the Kurdistan representation are going to solve that problem. That is a problem or an issue that needs to be discussed and resolved back home. Here in Washington, we represent our region and our country to the best of our ability while delivering our message to American officials and trying to broaden and smooth the relationship with the United States. To follow up on something you said uh, before uh, when I asked about the protests, you mentioned that you noticed that the response uh, to these protests has been, uh, I believe you said the word is more delicate. And I was wondering uh, why exactly you think that is. Um, Well, there are many, maybe one answer is that the security forces and whoever was behind the killing and violent repression of the process in 2019 have learned their lesson. Maybe the international protests and the indignation had an, an effect on them. That would be the optimistic answer. Yes. Uh, perhaps the uh, less optimistic answer is that they know that the parties that are leading the protests uh, have arms, right? Uh, they have uh, both political representation and other kinds of representation. And Uh, They don't want to get into a street battle, and none of us want that, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Protests should be peaceful. The response to protests should be peaceful. But uh, I think the dynamics is very different. Uh, The protesters in 2019 
were members of the public who had nothing. And tragically, they suffered for it. So I come from a deeply polarized state as well uh, called the United States. Uh, and the footage from these protests in Baghdad brought to mind one of our own protests, the storming of the Capitol and the coup attempt on January 6th. Uh, and I mentioned this because I want to transition to your own work in D.C. And you've served as representative during three different presidential administrations. And um, I think it's no secret uh, that America can shift identities rapidly, which can be a real roll of the dice. And I'm, I'm wondering throughout your career how you've navigated that and how your current work with the Biden administration has differed from uh, the Trump and Obama administrations? Well, first of all, we, like other diplomats, um, we do our best not to enter the fray of internal American politics. Our work on uh, Congress on the Hill is very, very bipartisan. Uh, we make sure that we try to meet as many Democrats as Republican members of Congress. There is a Kurdish-American Congressional Caucus, and there are four co-chairs, two Democrats, two Republicans. So we're very, very clear that we are not entering into domestic American rivalry. That's not our job. Um, and then how do we deal every time there's a change of administration? We wait and see. Um, I th I'd say most people that we meet, uh, for example, when the Trump administration came into office and then later the Biden administration, most people that we met in those new administrations were respectful of the fact that we're not going to enter party politics, American party politics, and would just want to listen to us or talk to us from a foreign policy point of view. However, where things are different and we have to respond is really the priorities of the new administrations. So I came here in early 2015. So I was here for the last two years, 15 and 16 of the Obama administration. And then early 2017, President Trump and his administration came into office. On a foreign policy front, their priorities were maximum pressure on Iran. Uh, they weren't sure about NATO. That includes Turkey. Mm -hmm. Turkey is a partner and for us a very important regional player. International religious freedom was a huge priority for the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And ISIS, they wanted to continue the fight against ISIS. Um, and there were other priorities, but I'm highlighting some of them some of the ones that were important for us. So we made sure that we were able to uh, discuss those priorities with them and how they were also priorities for us. In 2017, we still had, I believe, one and a half million, maybe close to two million refugees and IDPs who had fled ISIS, the Syrian conflict, and so on. So for us, it was very important that the Trump administration understand the situation of religious freedom in Kurdistan, the number of Christians and Yazidis who had fled to Kurdistan. So I'm just giving that as an example for brevity. When you jump forward to the Biden administration, their initial priorities were climate change, uh, human rights, uh, within that religious freedom, but really human rights, freedom of expression, 
and so on. And then other priorities, Russia, China, and so on. So what we do is we, we navigate according to the new priorities, but we still continue with our priorities. We still want the United States to be engaged in Iraq. It's to their benefit, it's to our benefit, and we have shared interests and shared values. So that part doesn't change. The non-partisan work that we do doesn't change, but definitely our engagement with the United States remains very strong, and that doesn't change either. Going back to 2017, uh, that was obviously a very big year for Kurdistan. And I wanted to ask uh, about your work leading up to and following the referendum. Specifically, I wanted to ask about working with the Trump administration and specific officials like, for example, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who has connections with Kurdistan as ex-CEO of Exxon. Uh, I was wondering if you had navigated any of that with any specific officials and what some of those talks looked like at the time. Certainly the run-up to the referendum was a period of tension in Erbil, Washington relations. I was campaigning in favor of the referendum, in favor of independence. Of course, we weren't going to declare independence straight away, but it would have set a marker for us and and for everybody. Um, So definitely I navigated some choppy waters here in Washington Uh, with uh, officials at the State Department and the White House at the time. Um, And then the period immediately after the referendum in October 2017, that was also a very tense period. But really, I'm I'm very proud and, and heartened that our relationship with the United States had been really, had started really in 91 with Operation Provide Comfort. And there had been enough history in that partnership and friendship that we were able to overcome those very strong tensions around 2017, even into early 2018, when we were fighting some of the militias and Iraqi forces Mm -hmm. under Prime Minister Abadi. Um, But I think we've crossed that period now and it's behind us and our relationship with the United States is still very strong. Any relationship, any partnership doesn't mean there are never tensions, there are never disagreements. It's natural that there would be. That period was very tense and it was difficult, but we overcame it. And and today we have many things that are of shared interest and shared values as well. Could you give me some of the agenda points that you're hoping to work with with this current administration and also in the future in the United States? Well, really, since I'm I'm talking about the period I've been in Washington, which Mm -hmm. was I came here January 2015, which was the peak of ISIS, right? ISIS at that time had a third of Iraqi territory, a third of Syrian territory, more or less, Uh, They were committing genocide and and the war fight against ISIS was at its peak. So our partnership with the United States, since I've been around in D.C., has been very, very focused on security. And we need that and we appreciate that. And that is crucial. And even today, um, the U.S. Congress and, and then through the U.S. Congress, the DOD, is partnering with the Peshmerga, providing stipends and other 
logistical and training assistance and reform assistance to the Peshmerga. So the security partnership is very strong and solid, and we appreciate that, and I don't want to really take anything away from that. However, both sides want to expand that. We do have uh, a trade partnership with the United States. The largest investors in Kurdistan's oil and gas sector are Americans. The American government through the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, which is a kind of a bank in the United States, through the DFC, the American government has invested in Kurdistan's oil and gas. American oil and gas companies have invested in Kurdistan. Besides that, there are other companies, American companies that have invested. We want to widen that. We want to have much more trade and investment with Americans. We want to broaden the cultural relationship, for example, through sister city partnerships. We're in the middle of discussions between Erbil City and Nashville City to discuss a sister city partnership between them and other cultural and educational relationships. So both sides, Americans and Kurdistan, have said we need to broaden the relationship. We need to fo focus more on women's empowerment, entrepreneurship, and cultural exchange. Well, Representative Abdulrahman, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Aaron. I think we've gone over our time. I hope it was okay. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again. Cheers. Thanks so much to Representative Abdul Rahman for her time, and thanks to you for listening. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to check out our website at kurdistanin.net. If you have any questions, be sure to reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. And uh, thanks once again. I've been Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. <laughs>